Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is From Orphan to Adoptee, U.S. Empire and Genealogies of Korean Adoption by Sujin Pate. According to the blurb about the author on the back of the book, quote, Sujin Pate is a visiting assistant professor at McAllister College, where she teaches critical race theory, immigration, and post-colonial approaches to the study of U.S. history and culture, end quote. I heard an interview with Sujin Pate on The John Chi Show, which is a podcast that advertises itself as being for, by, and about Korean adoptees. It's a pretty cool show, and on her episode, Sujin Pate discussed her own experiences of being a transracial Korean adoptee to the U.S., as well as her search for her birth family. It's a really powerful story, and I encourage you to check it out. I'll have a link to that episode of The John Chi Show in my show notes. This episode is the second episode in our Adoption from Korea season, but before we get into the book, I just wanted to speak a little bit more about our adoption season of the podcast. I mentioned in my previous episode that I am not someone who either was adopted or who adopted anyone, and I don't have close relatives or friends who were adopted either, but it's important to me to cover adoption because this is a major part of the history of Korea. It may seem a little strange that a podcast called K-Pop Bookshelf would cover adoption, but if you are a regular listener, you know that we try to shed light on Korean history, culture, and society. And as I've said many times before, idols and K-drama actors, they don't exist in a vacuum. Like all of us, they are shaped by the society, government, and culture in which they grew up and currently live. I will point out that in K-pop, there have been people like idol Lee Hangyo from BAE173, who was himself living in orphanages before he was adopted. Hangyo was not adopted to another country, but he stayed within Korea. JYJ member and former TVXQ member Kim Jae-jung was also adopted within Korea. Korean-American soloist Alexa was born to a Korean-American adoptee mother and she hopes that through her fame she can help her mom find her biological family in Korea. Since adoption is an extremely complicated topic where not all of the stories are just a simple happy story or even just a simple sad story, we have to talk about some very intense topics. These topics include child abandonment, child abuse, child death, war, poverty, politics, imperialism, race, racism, identity, and more. A lot of these topics will be discussed in today's episode, and just a note that I will be using the terminology and language that is used in this book. The book From Orphan to Adoptee by Sujin Pate goes into how formal adoption of children from Korea to other countries came about, and what the early days of this looked like. The book is nonfiction, filled with information and research from historical documents, media that talked about orphans at the time, sociologists who researched adoptees, documents and records belonging to the orphanages themselves, and more. There's actually so much in this book that I'm not going to be able to cover because it's just very in-depth and better to present in a book form rather than podcast form. So I will just cover some very small parts of this book, and if you're interested in this topic, definitely check it out. So many countries have historically allowed for inter-country adoption. But as I said before, what makes Korea unique is the sheer number of children sent overseas for adoption. A Canadian news article states, quote, The South Korean Ministry of Health told CBC News 
about 169,000 South Korean children were sent out for adoption across Europe and North America between 1958 and 2022. But experts estimate that number could be more than 200,000, in what some researchers believe to be the largest adoption exodus from one country, end quote. Many of you already know that one reason adoption from Korea even started was due to the Korean War. In the aftermath of the destruction and turmoil of the Korean War, which started in 1950, there were many children, some of whom who had been displaced or separated from their families, some of whom were orphaned, and some who were born to Korean mothers and foreign soldier fathers who needed homes. But Pate argues in her book that Korean adoption to countries abroad actually started in 1945. So now I'm going to explain some history and historical context in very super simplified terms. Prior to World War II, Korea was colonized by Japan. The U.S. was fighting Japan in the war. And due to Korea's proximity to Japan, as well as the Soviet Union, the U.S. had set up military bases in the southern part of Korea. Okay, and this was back when Korea was just all one country. There was not yet a North Korea and a South Korea, just Korea. In 1945, Korea gained its independence from Japan and World War II ended the same year. Since Korea was in economic dire straits by that point, they were not yet in the best position to govern themselves. The U.S. wanted to ensure that the part of Korea that they occupied, the southern part of Korea, became a democracy, as opposed to a communist country. This was especially important since northern Korea was occupied by Soviet forces at the time. So the U.S. military set up something called the USAMG, the United States Army Military Government, and the point of it was to help rebuild southern Korea's infrastructure and economy after the war. Although the U.S. did play a big part in helping Korea rebuild, their efforts didn't always go as smoothly as they had hoped because now, instead of being run by Japan, southern Korea was being run by the U.S. military. Along with this, the U.S., Soviet Union, and Great Britain decided to jointly manage South Korea under a trusteeship for five years. And this plan was met with great anger by Koreans who had just, as we said, recently been under Japanese rule and had become independent from Japan. So ironically, in order to help Korea maintain independence from a foreign power, they were going to occupy Southern Korea as a uh, foreign power. So during the same time period, which was right after World War II, Korea had an increase in children who were orphaned by the war combat itself of World War II and from people fleeing North Korea into the South. These orphans and displaced children ended up in orphanages. Pate quotes a number of 40,000 orphans in orphanages by the end of World War II. Subsequently, about a year into the Korean War, which was about six years after this figure that she quoted, Pate says there were almost 51,000 children living in orphanages in southern Korea. The U.S. military built many orphanages in Korea, and the author Sujin Pate writes, quote, By the 1960s, more than 400 orphanages have been built or repaired by American servicemen, end quote. So the U.S. military is in post-war South Korea building things like schools, roads, and orphanages, and the U.S. is providing economic assistance to help rebuild the nation of South Korea. For most nations, when something major happens, like a catastrophe or a war, other countries' militaries enter after the event happens to provide humanitarian assistance. But in the case of South Korea and the post-World War II, post-Korean War era, the U.S. military was already there in the aftermath of those wars. And this provided the opportunity for the U.S. to provide something that Sujin Pei calls militarized humanitarian assistance. It looks a lot like humanitarian aid, like what you would expect to be provided by aid organizations such as the Red Cross. But along with those organizations, which was also providing aid to Korea at this time, 
This aid was being provided by another country's military, aka the U.S. military. The fact that the U.S. was instrumental in helping to do things like build schools and orphanages actually helped to further justify prolonging its occupation of the region. Pate writes, quote, militarized humanitarianism became the primary tool in which to assuage the image of the United States as colonizer and occupier, advancing the Cold War version of American exceptionalism, end quote. The U.S. publicized its efforts to take care of orphan children in Korea by filming heartwarming interactions between soldiers and orphans, including American soldiers throwing Christmas parties for the children, giving them medical attention, and watching the children perform songs for them. And these film reels raised own awareness of the existence of Korean orphans to people who were in America and elsewhere. It also placed an image or an idea in the minds of other Americans of white Americans, for the most part, caring for Korean children, white soldiers caring for these Korean children, which may have been something that came into play once the actual adoption started taking place. There were also other media, such as news reports and news articles, which referred to Korean orphans as super helpless with terms such as waifs and urchins. U.S. soldiers themselves would also write letters back home to friends and loved ones describing the hardships faced by these orphans. Aside from building and financially supporting Korean orphans, U.S. soldiers and military personnel would sometimes sort of informally adopt some of these orphans as what is called as mascots in the book. Mascots were typically orphan Korean boys, but sometimes it could also be girls, and these kids would stick with a particular U.S. military unit fetching things for soldiers or doing little tasks for them. Mascots would really help improve morale among military members because who wouldn't like a cute little kid running around and making people laugh with their innocent antics and also being very useful. Maybe some people wouldn't be all that thrilled with this, but these U.S. military units were. Through the various media I mentioned, the film reels, the soldiers' letters home, information about Korean orphans were getting back to the general American public who would also often be asked by religious organizations and charities to help donate some money to help these orphans out. Outlets such as Life Magazine would get donations from businesses to help them as well. Sujin Pate writes, quote, ideologies of rescue and compassion were mobilized around activities such as donating food, clothing, and money to Korean orphans. It did not take long for these same ideologies to be transferred to the activity of transnational adoptions, end quote. As awareness about the plight of Korean orphans spread, some American people were so moved by what they heard that they began inquiring as to how they could adopt these Korean waifs and urchins. But before we get into the actual adoptions, let's discuss what was going on with the orphans who were still living in South Korea. There have always been orphans and children who lacked caregivers all over the world at any given time. So how did Korea handle orphans before World War II? Well, according to the book, during the Chosun Dynasty, which was from 1392 to 1910, Korean society would have family members look after these children, or people would adopt or foster them, and sometimes they would take these children in as domestic servants. There was a system and laws in place regarding the care of such children that Chosun rulers implemented. Then in the late 1800s, Christian missionaries, specifically of Catholic and Protestant faiths, began arriving to Korea from countries such as the U.S. and France. At that point, these Western missionaries created a system of caring for these types of children. These missionaries built the first Western-style orphanage in Korea in the 1890s. Pate writes, quote, Because this form of child welfare was already established, it seemed fitting that the crisis concerning orphans at the conclusion of the Korean War would be solved through the building of more orphanages. In this way, the Westernization and modernization of Korean child welfare laid the groundwork for Korean adoption, end quote. 
Missionaries like the U.S. military personnel writing letters about Korean orphans also raised awareness about Korean orphans to Americans and Europeans. The Christian organization World Vision, for example, would inspire people to donate or to adopt Korean children by appealing to people's religious sense of duty to help these forlorn children. One such religious American man who was inspired by World Vision to take responsibility for Korean orphans was a man named Harry Holt. Harry Holt is considered the father of intercountry Korean adoption, according to the book. He and his wife Bertha ran what was called the Holt Adoption Program, which is now known as Holt International Children's Services. The author of From Orphan to Adoptee, Sujin Pate, looked through many of the Holt Adoption Program documents for the purpose of researching and writing this book. Harry Holt played a huge part in marketing Korean children as adoptees to American families. The influence of Holt became greater once the Korean War came to a truce, because FYI, the Korean War is not yet over, it's never ended, I don't know if you guys knew that, and the U.S. military began withdrawing from Korea. So after the war, the military aid to Korea began to decrease, and there were fewer American soldiers who could help repair or build orphanages or support orphans in the way that they had been doing with Christmas parties and mascots and things like that. But there was still a great need for this type of support for Korean orphans. The South Korean government still couldn't or wouldn't support the number of orphanages that were in operation then, so religious organizations began taking them over financially. But it was Holt and the adoption program that he ran that became one of the major players in Korean intercountry adoption. Just a little more background on Harry Holt. He was an American farmer from the state of Oregon who, after listening to one of the reverends from World Vision speak about Korean orphans, began supporting several orphans through those monthly sponsorships that you can still do with a lot of charities and organizations. And upon visiting South Korea in 1955, Holtz concluded that the best thing for these orphans was if Americans adopted them. Although he already was a father to his six biologically related children, he adopted eight additional children during this trip to Korea. Pate writes, quote, in becoming the ultimate figure of the Good Samaritan, he chose four girls and four boys who, quote, weren't so attractive and were the, quote, least fortunate of the group. This act marked the so-called birth of Korean adoption, end quote. So now it's 1956 and Holt has established his adoption agency, the Holt Adoption Program. He decides to build Holt orphanages, since remember the military isn't around to help build orphanages for Korea anymore. The first orphanage he builds is in the city of Ilsan. It was a large facility, and the way it's described in the book makes it sound almost like a campus, with warehouses, dining halls, schools, and more. The Ilsan Holt Orphanage housed orphans who were either children who were actually orphans, or those who were lost or separated from their families, or who were abandoned by their families. In the years following, the number of children adopted from Korea through Holt Adoption Program began rapidly increasing. Holt Adoption Program became the largest adoption agency in Korea, and it was one through which about half of all Korean adoptees were adopted. The reason for this was due to something called proxy adoptions. The book talks a lot about these various legal methods and legislation involved to allow for intercountry adoption of Korean children, but in the interest of time, I'm not going to cover most of that. I will just say that before the Holt Adoption Program, most people adopted Korean children through a piece of legislation called the Refugee Relief Act. But this act expired at the end of 1956. And again, this has to do with intercountry adoption of Korean children. Okay, this doesn't apply to domestic within Korea adoption. As I said previously, Harry Holt thought it was best for Americans to take care of orphans, 
and he wanted to help adopt out as many children as possible. So he did this thing called proxy adoptions. And in proxy adoptions, people other than the prospective adoptive parents, basically their representatives, would be the ones to actually travel to Korea, do the paperwork and all the other necessary legal tasks to finish up the adoption process. This means that many of these children were placed without ever meeting their adoptive parents beforehand, and adoptive parents were going to become mothers and fathers to children they had never even met or seen before. If you know how international adoption typically works, or you've seen other documentaries or whatever about adoption, you know that a lot of times parents visit the country. If it's another country that they're adopting from, they check out the children, they meet the child, they see how it goes, they have some time to bond, or they have some time to at least get to know them. But proxy adoptions did away with all of that. It really cut down on time it takes to adopt someone. This proxy adoption was not a practice supported by social workers and other adoption service workers, so it's pretty unique to Holt. According to the book, quote, Holt did not think that man's rules applied to him because he believed that he received a prophecy from the Lord concerning the rescue of Korean children, end quote. But Holt's efficiency with placing children was seen as pretty much only a good thing among Americans and even Korean President Syngman Rhee. If you've ever seen those planes filled with baby bassinets carrying Korean babies to their adoptive American parents, those planes were likely chartered by Holt Adoption Program. Indeed, Holt Adoption Program, through the means of this proxy adoption process and chartered planes, were the fastest in having adopted children actually leave Korea. One question I always had was why adoption from Korea continued for so long after the war. And one explanation given by Su Jinpate was the industrialization of Korea. Quote, the rapid industrialization of South Korea during the 1960s led to increased numbers of abandoned children by poor and working class single mothers who were fighting poverty and the cultural stigma of being unwed, end quote. Despite the speedy adoption of so many children, the number of orphans continued to skyrocket in Korea. Due to this, Holt adoption programs continued to build additional orphanages. Social services and orphanage workers in South Korea had to work to market orphans, according to the book. Pate states that all children living in orphanages were classified as orphans, whether or not their parents were living. Of course, there were some children who were truly orphans, especially in the aftermath of war, where residential areas had been bombed and fully leveled. However, some children were separated or they got lost from their parents in the ensuing rush to flee from attack and to safety. But in many cases, orphans in South Korea were children who had at least one living parent. Pate writes, quote, in the case of mixed race orphans, both parents were usually alive, end quote. And what she means by that is that a lot of times there were children who were born to the Camp Town women, and you can check out my episode about the Flowers of Fire to learn about Camp Town women. Basically, they worked at government-run brothels at army bases, at or near army bases, and GIs, foreign GIs from other countries. So oftentimes these children were mixed race. Because it was not always possible for GIs to marry these Camp Town women that they had children with, oftentimes these children would go up for adoption because the mom would continue to work where they were working and the father might get transferred out or sent back home. So there was no way for them to take care of the child. In any case, these children were classified as orphans, despite having a living parent or parents, making them orphans in a social and legal sense, according to Pate. The analysis of this is far more in-depth in the book, but to summarize the concept of the social orphan, I will just read this quote from the book. Quote, in other words, killing off the Korean family by conflating the lost or abandoned child with orphaned child inadvertently destabilizes the child's national affiliation to Korea, 
which is required for the Korean child to take on an alternative American national identity, end quote. The concept of the social orphan also stretches to Americans back in the U.S., being able to imagine themselves as saviors to what organizations such as the Red Cross and others refer to as waifs and tots in need. Many orphans, and therefore adoptees, like I mentioned, were products of relationships between soldiers from other countries and therefore other races, and Korean women, sometimes women who worked in brothels. The eight children that Harry Holt adopted were all of mixed race background. Aside from some of these orphans being of mixed race heritage, Korean women who were single mothers often faced a really huge stigma for being unmarried. Also, as a single parent, they faced difficulties in being able to provide for both themselves and their children. So some mothers relinquish their children for these reasons. Often too, orphanages seem to be a better place for children to grow up compared to disadvantaged households. So many children were just dropped off at orphanages by their biological mothers because the orphanages got donations which could help feed their children better than the parents could, which could help clothe them, give them an education. And so based on this, Pate makes the distinction that many such children were not abandoned, but rather separated from their families by their parents, dropping them off to have a better life at that orphanage. Pate writes, quote, Korean orphanages became social welfare and social service centers rather than solely institutions of abandoned children, a place where struggling families went to get financial relief, end quote. The Korean government, for their part, was not as focused on assisting orphans and families through ways such as implementing social service programs. Even in the 70s, the South Korean government was still focused on spending money towards defense. So things like social welfare services and programs that would help families who are struggling were not as prioritized. And why should they prioritize it when charities and missionaries receiving aid from countries abroad were managing the children in the orphanages well enough, you know? The author of the book, Sujin Pate, says that this is why the need for orphanages and adoption continued in Korea for so long that orphanages and adoptions were used in place of social services, since the government didn't provide those. But at the time, and for some time after, the first place struggling single mothers would be directed would be orphanages. Children living in Holt orphanages were categorized by who was the most desirable to prospective adoptive parents. According to the book, children at the Holt orphanages were classified as adoptable and unadoptable, which is a heartbreaking thing to think about. And one of the criteria used to put children in these categories was whether or not they would pass the health examination that was required for U.S. immigration. Now, this included things like blood samples, x-rays, and testing for tuberculosis. Any child not meeting these certain test measurements would not be allowed to be adopted to their U.S. family. So the Ilsan Orphanage often tested kids living there with these same medical tests periodically. Unfortunately, the standards of the Holt Orphanage were not always ideal, as children sometimes would die in the orphanage. In the records Pate reviewed from Holt Adoption Program, money-saving measures were put in place, such as cutting nursing staff. Nursing staff was cut to the point that some of the older children living at the orphanage would end up having to help look after the sick babies. There's also a somewhat disturbing fact that the Holt family was making their own baby formula, which, according to written documents by Bertha Holt, Harry Holt's wife, were made from, quote, skim milk, corn oil, and syrup, end quote. That's not exactly very nutritious, but I'm no doctor. They did eventually start feeding the babies fortified milk, but not until after many babies died as a result, according to the book. Disabled children in the orphanage were classified as, quote unquote, handicapped. Such children included those who had physical disabilities, but also even those children who had birthmarks or cleft lips. 
Not all handicapped children stayed classified as unadoptable, though, because some orphans received plastic surgery to deem them adoptable. And these types of surgeries were funded by donations to the orphanages, as we previously discussed, and those donations were mostly from people living in Western nations. Older children, such as adolescents, were also seen as difficult to adopt out due to the desire for many people to take home babies, not tweens and teenagers. Pate reviewed documents that noted teen girls at the Holtz Orphanage at Ilsan who had more or less formed a gang and wouldn't even listen to the grown-ups working there. The Holt Adoption Program even tried to arrange marriages for these girls, but the girls wouldn't do it. So they were considered unruly and abnormal for not wanting to be married. Once children turned 18, they no longer lived in the orphanage. Children with African-American heritage who were referred to by the Holt Program as Korean Negro were not as adoptable in the Holt Adoption Program. These children were products of the African-American soldier fathers and Korean mothers. Holt Adoption Program adopted children with African-American heritage out to African-American couples only. You couldn't adopt these children if you were a white couple. It's noted in the book that the Korean-Caucasian children were considered white and therefore more adoptable, whereas Korean children with African-American heritage were considered black and therefore the least desired. Korean children without mixed-race heritage, and therefore pretty much considered fully Korean, were in the middle of desirability between these other categories. Uh, racism really sucks. I will be discussing more specifically about those children with mixed-race Korean and African-American heritage in another episode. One of the biggest takeaways for me from this book was learning about what a big business adoption became for South Korea's economy. This quote in the book in particular really stuck out to me. Quote, Indeed, the profits that came from the adoption of South Korean children by Westerners helped reinvigorate a fledgling economy, so that by the 1980s, Korean adoption was bringing in 15 to $20 million a year, leading some to link South Korea's, quote, economic miracle to the exportation of Korean children. That figure is now up to $35 million per year, end quote. I personally found this shocking because so many of the other books and references consider the industrialization of South Korea, the whole like miracle on the Han River thing, to be what brought about South Korea's economic success in the 20th century. But if you're interested in this, I, again, I really can't recommend this book enough because it's really fascinating and kind of shocking. And Sujin Pate brings up just so many important topics and concepts that, again, I did not even remotely cover. This is just like a, a huge glossing over of everything she said. And I don't even include everything that she said. So please check out the book. I hope now you have some better understanding of how South Korea came to adopt out so many children and the economic impact of them doing so. We will be discussing some more books in this season, so definitely check out other episodes if you haven't already. You can check out my show notes for links to The John Shi Show, which is where Sujin Pate is interviewed, and some additional links used to make this episode. Special thanks to V for additional research. Special thanks to AO for designing the blog. Special thanks to Emma Rouge for the podcast cover art. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye.